0: This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. I'm John Dankosky. It's where we take a look at how things work in the land of steady habits, how they don't work, and how we can make them work just a little bit better. And if this past week it seemed like nothing is working in America, not just here in Connecticut, well, you might be right. We saw nationwide protests over the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, and Ahmad Arbery in Georgia, and Breonna Taylor in Louisville, and countless other black and brown people who've been killed by police and in other acts of racist violence. Some of those marches turned violent when the peaceful protests were met with military equipment and tear gas. Others escalated with looting and the burning of buildings. In Washington, there was further escalation as President Trump brought in military, not just police and military gear, mind you, but military to beat back a peaceful crowd and working journalists. It came after he harangued U.S. governors to crack down more forcefully on protests. Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont was on that call with the president. He dismissed that, of course. He said our state would handle it the Connecticut way. And here it has seemed police restraint and a seeming lack of outside agitators resulted in so far peaceful, temporary shutdown of highways. But that peace does not hide the anger of state residents, especially those in cities who've seen police shooting of unarmed men high rates of police stops of people of color in the suburbs, and a systemic inequality in housing, in education, and in opportunity. Sean Wooden has seen all of this firsthand. He was born and raised in Hartford. He went to Trinity College here, became a corporate lawyer at a big law firm here. He was called the can't miss kid in Hartford politics by the Hartford Current back in 2001. He served as president of the city council, and he was elected state treasurer in 2018. This past weekend, Wooden wrote an op-ed for the Hartford Current titled, Corporate America, It's Time to Stand Up Against Racism. So I wanted to ask him about the call that he makes to the companies that he invests Connecticut's money in, also about his own story of experiencing racism, and about an issue that a current city councilman in Hartford has been raising, whether Hartford should have a police force that's more than twice as large as similar-sized cities. But we started with the first line of Wooden's op-ed, I am a proud American... And I'm having trouble breathing in the country I love.
1: I, I thought it was important to, you know, part of me feels like I shouldn't have to say it, but our country has such a, a challenge with, even though it's embedded in our, in our principles, kind of dissent, discourse, debate. Um, but when it comes to issues of race, our country is challenged to talk about these things. And in some respects um, have, you know, some people almost feel it's un-American, where in my view, it, it's quite the contrary, you know, to, to, to make, to create, to promote a more, more, more perfect union is one of the most American things you can do. And I felt like it was important to say that out at the outset in terms of who I am. And, you know, that's why I, I serve our state, i serve you know, my city.
0: Um, a, a lot of people, when times like this happen, say, this is not the America that I know. And then I have an awful lot of friends who say, no, nah, this is exactly the America we've, we've sort of made for ourselves. Where do you fall on that spectrum?
1: That this is the America, uh, sadly, to say and acknowledge for me, but this is the America that I know. Mm-hmm. This is the America that many African Americans have experienced that I've experienced that my parents have experienced and um, and that's 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 just our reality And now it's you know we've had video for for quite some time now and but the more and more of the video that we see, I think others are getting a lens into, what America looks like for many of us. And it, it's it's a sad thing to acknowledge, but I've come down on this is the America that I know. And this is the America that I've been working to change much of my life in different respects, whether it was that I was in high school and I was in a desegregation busing program uh, went from Hartford to, to Manchester. Um, called Project Concern, now it's the the CREC program, whether it was when I was a student at Trinity College and I was the president of the Black Students Organization, um, taking up these issues, whether it was as as a lawyer and working my way way up to become a partner in a law firm and to promote diversity and inclusion. Uh, This has been been my story and the story of many African-Americans You know, as well as, you know, as I wrote about in the piece, you know, my family's roots in Georgia. Um, you know, so actually the first time I've shared that story about traveling South, but I've often shared that my, my father would tell me that they left the South for three reasons for a better economic opportunity. And just, you know, they needed jobs and, and work. Um, because of the Ku Klux Klan and because he hated snakes. Hmm. Those are the three things that my father always told me. Hmm. Um, and, but that's, that's part of kind of the the family legacy. And, you know, I've fought hard, you know, all my life around these issues. And now as, as a, as a dad, uh, father of two teenage black boys, um, this America continues to scare me, and that's why. Um, and there was something about Ahmaud Aubrey. You know, we've had Trayvon Martin. We've had we've had so many along the way, but something about Ahmaud Aubrey, which triggered. I wanted to I wanted to write about this. I wanted to use my voice and my platform uh, in a way that I I haven't traditionally. Um, you know, work very hard to improve the community in our state in lots of ways. But uh, with this issue in this moment, you know, it was incumbent upon all of us to to raise our voice if we care.
0: Tell me what it is about about his story specifically, because I mean, I think you make sadly such a an important point that the more videos that we see over time, it's like each one of them fills in a little piece of a puzzle oh, I see, this can happen to a black man who's running. This can happen to a black woman at a traffic stop. This can happen to a black man who, who is just going about his business. Um, what is it about that story specifically that that triggered something in you? So,
1: you know, and to be clear, all of them, I right, You know, I was at the steps of the state capitol after Trayvon Martin's uh, death. So so there, there's both the culmination mm-hmm. Of these collective experiences in watching black boys and black men being killed, and now on video. Um, but Trayvon Martin uh, or Ahmaud Arbery, it was you know my, my family's roots uh, in Georgia. It was those experiences, their stories about growing up. Their my experiences going back for the South. It was him jogging and. My son at the dinner table asking me, um, "Is it safe to jog?" He's a runner, and he jogs around our neighborhood. It was there's so many aspects. It was even when the the subsequent video came out of him looking looking in a house under construction, um, as if maybe that was going to be something bad, mm-hmm. and thinking that just days before seeing that video of him in that construction site. I did the exact same thing when I was going by a house under construction Mm -hmm. and I walked in, I was curious and thinking about, you know, is curiosity a a death sentence uh, if if you're black? Um, All of it, all of it moved me to say enough.
0: Yeah, that... My folks live down in South Carolina now, and they live in one of those places where houses started to get built and then the and the economic collapse happened. And so there were a bunch of abandoned houses. And I go out walking with my parents and we do that all the time. We'd walk around and say, ooh, what's the floor plan look like in this place? And as a white American man, I never once think about the fact that anyone might do anything other than come up and say, hey, get out of there. But that really speaks directly to what you and Ahmad and and so many other people must 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 feel.
1: Yeah, and and I, I thought I was done with my my piece on Memorial Day, mm-hmm. and then Central Park uh, with Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper happened, and, and then George Floyd in Minneapolis, and the the power of all of that. And the culmination, um, it it's it's a lot, and as we see with the reaction of, of the nation, uh, it it is it is a lot, and it's you know almost too much. Uh, I for one, I'm very hopeful, though, that we we can use this moment, and and that's the intent. You know, I I, I never write just event, um, but the intent that we can use this moment where it's not just another death at the hands of police, just another killing, just another moment of outrage, but it can be translated. We can take tragedy and pain and turn it into purpose in our country. And that's why I made this call to corporate America to act to get off the sidelines and to be engaged and and it's not an indictment on corporate america for me but more so from where i sit now as a state treasurer from i have a front row seat mm-hmm. to wall street corporate america these are my business partners and and i'm there i'm in this space that is rare for most people and certainly rare for black men in America. And I thought it was important for me to make that call to corporate America, understanding the unique position of power and influence they have in our society and understanding the historical precedents for their constructive engagement around social change. When we look at apartheid in South Africa in the economic boycott efforts and how that contributed to bringing down a broken, racist uh, system of oppression. When we look at the North Carolina bathroom bill and how corporate America responded and how that changed policy. And so this is a call to action to engage a significant influential players in American society that heretofore have not been consistently focused on engaging in systemically changing them.
0: In your mind, though, what does that look like? Because I think that um, already we've seen some attempts in the last week by some corporations to make more public stands or stances. Um, sometimes they look, frankly, like they're photo opportunities, a way to say that I'm doing the same thing as everyone else. It's, it's, you know, we're, I'm talking to you on blackout Tuesday and everyone's trying to figure out a way how they can, um, make sure that they're signaling that they're in solidarity. So what does it really look like to you for corporate America to do something substantive that holistically changes it, not in the sort of piecemeal way that, that happened in North Carolina, a tragically stupid piece of legislation gets, you know, sidelined by people who know better. Basically, but really, corporate America saying we're going to do away with 400 years of systemic racism in America, and we're going to make it, and we're going to make it happen. I mean, how does that look to you?
1: Yeah, and 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 I would say, you know, one one of my one might laugh at me, uh. But despite that 400 years, those 400 years, uh, I still have optimism, I still have hope, and, and I believe that we are at a moment uh, right now, and I'll call it our Emmett Till moment in America, where people, you know, good people of all walks in law enforcement, activists, in government, in corporations, are really getting the sense that this is a problem that we have to address. And so what that looks like is looking at economic disparities in our society, uh, rooted in those 400 years in that story. Mm-hmm. And I know some people you know, are very sensitive about drawing the dots or the line between between slavery, Jim Crow, uh, de jure segregation, de facto segregation to current present day conditions. But I think if you look at the history, uh, there is no question about it. uh, When we look at the difference in economic opportunities, when we look at housing, it was just in New Haven last week, talking about the redlining that took place in the 1930s that that community is still uh, suffering from um, as redlining has happened all across Connecticut in in America, right? We're still living with that and we have to look at housing issues. When we look at healthcare disparities and the correlation, and no time in our history is that underscored more than during this COVID-19 pandemic. When we see the death rates for African-Americans Uh, higher, the infection rates higher, um, and the underlying conditions, there is a straight line and a correlation. When we look at educational disparities in our society, and when we look at all of this, I think what it looks like for corporate America to get off the sidelines Mm -hmm. and to lead is to be serious about that comprehensive approach towards, and it's not corporate America in isolation, Um, but it's working with those in in government. It's working with the faith community. It's work all together and looking deliberately at these patterns and how to break systemic barriers.
0: It's- Yeah, and I just want to jump in though, because I mean, I think that that's obviously right. The problem is that corporate America has shown time and time again that when asked to give up even a modicum of power, or money, they say no. The investor value is the holy grail on Wall Street. If you're not making money for your investors, you're not doing your job. And what that continually comes back to is policies, it seems, that keeps us from getting healthcare, from tackling healthcare disparities, from figuring out how to solve systemic issues of poverty. We don't get any of these things in large part because if, if they really want to look at how to do something about it, just don't take so much profit for yourself and, and your top CEOs. Figure out a way to get more of it into the community that buys your stuff and where you live. And they've consistently not done that.
1: So you, you're absolutely right. And, and, you're, and you're speaking to the right guy about it because <laughs> I, I, I deal in money. And I know about having a fiduciary duty, right? I I, I know about taking care of the beneficiaries and in the best interest of their interest for pension funds. I know about, as a shareholder, on behalf of the state of Connecticut, and owning uh, an interest in many of these corporations that we're talking about, I know about the role of shareholder value. Mm -hmm. But I also want to say to you that there is lots of data now showing the relationship between some of these other policies. Sometimes we talk about human, human capital and the value of that towards long-term value um, in a company, right? But this is about protecting your customers and they're making their lives better to buy more of your products. This is about protecting your human capital in your workforce. Um, so there's there's an increasing business rationale as to why it makes sense to address these issues right now you know we're going to have some corporations go out of business Mm -hmm. as a result of this pandemic and and other conditions and those right and i've had you know i have my investment team we have daily calls with economists with some of the you know smartest money managers uh in the country and getting their perspective on these things but the there is a case to be made that those that take care of their workers better that are more connected with their communities and the customer base they serve are actually going to a survive b create greater long-term shareholder value for those companies but i think you know we we certainly have to speak and i as a treasurer have to speak in the language of, of money uh, to uh to the same constituency you know in corporate America but i but I think I think we are we are coming to a point in history I mean it's it's not a, a overstatement to say our nation's at a boiling point right now and what is corporate America going to do because it doesn't work it doesn't work for corporate America it doesn't work for government it doesn't work for our local neighborhoods if we do not Figure this out, and so I think I think that business imperative combined with the moral imperative of the moment, mm-hmm. I am hopeful that that will bring us to the table in a constructive way to crack the code on some of these long-standing challenges.
0: And does this, in your mind, change the the Connecticut investment strategy? I mean, do you start to look at at this and use your influence and say? we need you to change your policies because we want to be able to invest the the money of the people of Connecticut in your, in your product, but we can't do it unless you do something that's different than what you're doing.
1: Well, so a, a couple of things, and that's, that's an excellent question. Um, one, and I was, I was an investment lawyer for 21 years before becoming a state treasurer and I advised institutional investors, right. On, How to comply with their duties in in structuring investment so first thing is as a fiduciary to look out for the best long-term interest and value great two and and this is why you know I, i love talking about this because oftentimes we those that do not believe capital should be used in a way to make society better they often give this false choice between investing in making money or investing in losing money, but doing something good. I reject it. I wholeheartedly reject it. And the data actually supports the fact that you can invest in ways, in fact, you have to. So every investment that we make, our investment managers uh, have to fill out what we call ESG, environmental social governance questionnaire to figure out what are they doing? How do they see these things? How does it factor into their investment thesis? Uh, because we believe there is a correlation between paying attention to these uh, environmental, social, and governance factors and creating value. Hmm. So, um, so that's that's what I'm already doing today. Looking at diversity. I'm there's another questionnaire. Tell me about tell me about your company. Um, tell me about your leadership. Tell me who are the diverse uh, members of your team. Uh, there's a study, I believe it was a McKinsey study that showed that when we look at companies, for example, Fortune 500 companies uh, that had women on their boards as compared to those who were all male, those with diversity of gender on their boards outperform their peers. Um, so there's actual data uh, from reputable uh, consulting firms and others that supports diversity does create value.
0: Well, and there's this idea of diversity creating value, but it, it loops back though to to some of the story that you had growing up, going through a legal career, going through a political career, going through your college career, and probably often being in a position where you were the only black man yes. in the room how much does it change things in terms of corporate America's ability to see this as a problem, not just for creating value, but to see this as something you have to do something with. If you have more black executives who have been stopped by police for no particular reason other than the color of their skin in the boardroom, if you have more people actually making those decisions, my sense is, is that you're going to have a lot more sensitivity toward the very things that we're talking about. Whether or not that that is all about value or not, I don't know. But it certainly seems as though the sensitivity toward the rea- the realities is going to be there.
1: It, it absolutely will be, and because leadership to state the obvious, leadership starts at the top. And the and right now, you know, I'm hoping we can have a confluence of kind of grassroots activism, and in kind of elevating the issue, raising the voices, expressing the pain and the outrage and leadership that is sensitive, attuned, willing to listen and to bring that together. So with respect to corporate boards, diversifying the boards will lead to that level of different perspective in the room about how corporations respond. And I can tell you already anecdotally from the number of corporate CEOs that have already responded to me or other senior executives, uh, be they white or black. um, The message is starting to get through Um, with respect to some of the black senior executives, you know, sharing their own stories about one coincidentally says, you know, his son 17, like my son, Mm -hmm. Um, but sharing those stories and creating, you know, I'm hopeful that you know, my my piece in the current will, will be just one part of making it safe, making it comfortable to tell your story, and in doing so, giving people a different lens or perspective um, as it as we go through this encounter. Because you know, where we come from, how we grew up, that influences what we see, even what we see on television today. In the coverage, right? I know. I see. I see outrage. I see years of pain. I see America you don't, You don't hear me. That's what I see. Mm. And and I'm I'm hopeful that we take that right. And 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 I feel like America is starting to see but will it see after the flames go down? Will that motivation be there? It's, it's my job as, as someone who cares about our country to not sit on the sidelines, to not remain in a comfortable place, um, and that's all relative as a black man in America, um, but not to just sit there, but to make sure that we keep pushing and uh, President Obama, you know, he recently talked about, you know, the arc of the moral universe uh, bending towards justice and borrowing from King and others. But he said, but it doesn't bend on its own. It doesn't bend on its own. And so I'm inviting corporate America and to say, let's bend it together. Hmm. And that's what I'm trying to do.
0: Treasurer, if I can, I'd like to ask you just one more question, and I know I've taken a bunch of your time. Uh, you used to serve on, on Hartford City Council, and so you were intimately involved in in helping to run a, a city which has had, its in the past, its its own problems with relations between police and the people uh, who the police are there to serve. Uh, Josh Mictum, somebody who you probably know, who now serves on City Council, has been writing a bit about, about the issue of how many police Hartford has per resident compared to other cities its size. And, and I'm wondering with your experience, sir, if, if you think that we spend too much money on police and there's just too many police in a place like Hartford or, or Louisville or Minneapolis, it's not just about, good police and bad police is not about police conduct. It's not about even the racial makeup of the police force, but that we just have too many people who are trying to police people every day, sometimes with with very fancy equipment that they get that seems like military equipment. How do you sense that? I mean, do, do you feel like the public is spending too much public money right now on, the, on a policing problem, which would be better served by having less dollars directed at it?
1: So... I don't believe, I believe that's a reasonable discussion and debate, right, as, as it relates to allocation of resources. I, however, don't believe that the amount of money that's spent on it is, say, personnel. Um, that there is, a, that that contributes to police uh, violence or I think we're, we're talking about cultures mm. and whether you have a police force of 200 or 400, right? If you don't change the culture of policing, and there's been a lot of work done on community policing efforts. You know, when I was on the city council, I uh, launched with some colleagues, uh, a faith-based coalition working with the faith community and the police community and law enforcement in a collaborative partnership sense, right? But changing that culture, I remember engaging with some in the police union of talking about changing the culture of reflexively defending all bad conduct because it's undermining the uh, social contract uh, between the community and the police um, when when bad actors um, institutionally are protected. And I argued it's good institutionally for the force and for our community, for those to be rooted out. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Body cams, you know, that was very important to me and and some others in advocating uh, for bringing body cams onto the police force and the discussions I had with police officers that said, you know, this is just as much about protecting the community as it is protecting good cops from doing their... You know for doing their job, right, and not getting, you know, unnecessary accusations, right. So transparency has been good. So these are the types of efforts. But fundamentally, you know, someone someone told me year, years ago, you know, you, you can't serve the people if you don't love the people. And I think our police forces all across this country would be well served by learning to love the people. And many and many of them do. Um, but but that culture of service, community engagement. I think that's that's a bigger problem is the culture, but not the size of the force. Now, one other tidbit on you talk about the militarization of police forces. I do believe that has been a problem. Um, and you know, say they get all this money, they buy all these toys. And then you'll you know they, they have things that look like tanks that they can pull out in certain circumstances yeah. and if they have them in the warehouse they're going to roll them out you know when, when perhaps they should you know be putting out their arms and for an embrace um, you know recently the uh, police chief in uh, Flint Michigan you know went to went to a scene and said, I'm with you and just the power of that connection. And he said, the batons are laid down. It's all over there. I'm with you. What do you want to do? And the response was instantly walk with us. Right. But, you know, it was very unfortunate years ago when I was on the city council, when we had a police chief who decided to join uh, marchers. I don't want to say he was a became a protester with them, but decided before they got to the police station to walk with him. I mean, he, he embedded himself. To talk with the, the protesters as they marched along mm-hmm. and arrived at the police station, and he was criticized by some in the police force for doing that, mm-hmm. and that is counterproductive. We need to build bridges, not burn them down, and that's that's going to get our country to a higher level.
0: Treasurer sure, Sean, Wooden. it's always good to talk with you, and I really appreciate you sharing uh, some of your stories and your thoughts on this matter. Uh, I, I do appreciate your time, and thanks so much, and, and be well, okay. Thank you, John. Next week, we hope to continue our series, Reopening Connecticut, but we're going to continue to bring you conversations on this most important American issue as well. And I hope you'll join us. In fact, we're working with the International Festival of Arts and Ideas for a program called Who is Essential? Race, Culture, and Identity in American Democracy. It's a conversation with my good friend, Dr. Kalila Brown-Dean from Quinnipiac University. It's going to be on Facebook, YouTube, and the homepage of the International Festival of Arts and Ideas. If you go to ArtIdea.org, you can find out a lot more about that event. If you haven't yet subscribed to our podcast, please do it. You can find it in all the places you get your podcasts. I'd like to thank George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson, who provide our Steady Beats. They recorded their Steady Beats at Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut. A big thanks to Bruce Putterman and to Kyle Constable. I'm John Dankosky, and we'll talk to you again soon.